Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, listen, we, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. When we've covered a lot of ground, so we can't really take time to review everything. Let me talk about a couple of things we mentioned last week, and then we'll jump in to something new this morning. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 6, and one of the things that we talked about was how the church was growing. The people are being added to their number. It's exploding, man. It's just, it's just driving forward. Then we get to Acts 6, and we see that they've hit like a snag in the road, that they've, they've started to develop problems. And we said last week that growth causes issues. It, it just does. But the model of the early church wasn't to make adjustments to stop the growth, but was to make adjustments to deal with the issues and facilitate more growth to take place. And when you read through it, the solution to the problem was more people serving, more people getting involved, more people using their their abilities to serve in the house of God. So we said last week, one of the things that makes the church great is people serving. The church needs you to serve. The church is a body, and everybody plays a role. If you're not serving, we need you to serve. But it's not just the church that needs that. What makes the church great, one of the things is people serving, but that also makes people great. That being willing to humble yourself and serve, to give of yourself, to give of your resources, your time, your abilities, it helps to make you great. God has big things for you. God wants you to make impact. He has significant things for you to do. But you never step into the big things if you refuse to step into the small things. You'll never step into the big things God has for you if you refuse to step into the small things that he has for you. So some people have that sense that God has called them to something big. Man, I just feel like God, God is, I'm special somehow. Like there's something significant he wants me to do. You're right. You, there is something significant. You are special, but people are wrong about how they choose to pursue it. They think they're just going to wait for some huge opportunity. No, you you serve your way there. You humble yourself as a servant. When I was in first grade, I had this kid that lived next to us that one day, uh, he called me over to his yard to show me the tree that he'd planted. So he took me in the back and there was like a little dirt patch there where you could see he'd been digging around. He showed me his tree. There was nothing. He just, he'd planted some apple seeds there and he was excited. He's going to have his very own tree. Well, I thought that was pretty neat for a kid to have its, his own tree. I like that idea, but I didn't like just looking at a patch of dirt and, you know, just waiting. I, if I'm going to have a tree, I want to have a tree. So I went home and I got a great big limb off of a tree and I dug a hole and I planted it you know, packed the dirt in back around it. And I stood back and I admired, I didn't have a little patch of ground. I had a tree calling other people to admire my tree. I really didn't understand that. That's not how it worked. It was my mom. When I showed her, look at this tree. I've got, I planned this tree. Look at it. It's amazing. It looked like a sapling standing there. She said, you, you know, that's not going to grow, right? You know, you've got, you've got to plant a seed and that you can't just break limbs off and stick them in the, the ground. I didn't understand that. But sometimes that's the attitude we have when we know, man, I want something big. We want to skip the small phase and just jump into something, something large. It's like the person who's unemployed year after year after year. Wait, they say they're waiting for a management position to open up. Someone who just has never had a job because they feel like, I, I, I want to be a CEO. Well, maybe you're supposed to be a CEO, but typically that's not your first job. You don't just step into that, right? You go through the small things and you develop and you grow. It's the same way in the body in the body of Christ. God has more for you. 
There's more for you. Do you know that? There's more for you. In, in every area, in the kingdom of God, there's more. More for you to accomplish. More for you to learn. It doesn't matter how old you are. In the kingdom of God, there's no plateau. There's always more for you. God has more. It doesn't matter if you're 70, 80, 90 years old. If you're here, God has more for you. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, that the path of the just or the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until the perfect day. The King James Version says it shines more and more until the perfect day. They've just, for the sake of space, not gone on and on, but they could say more and 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 more. Hopefully you get the idea. They say more and more and say until the perfect day, until we reach perfection, until Jesus has come back, until the kingdom is completely set up, until that point in time, there's always what? There's always more and more and more. As long as you're here, there's more for you. And when people get that, sometimes they just don't understand how to go about getting to the more. There is more for you. We looked at James 4.10 last week. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of God. And what happens next? Then, then he will lift you up. That God will lift you up if you, if you humble yourself. That's how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God starts small and grows from there. In, in Luke chapter 11, G, or 13 maybe it is, Jesus is trying to describe the kingdom of God. And he says, you know, what, what can I, how can I illustrate this? Well, how can I explain the kingdom of God? So it's, it's like uh, in the garden having the mustard seed, which is the smallest of the seeds. But once you plant it, it becomes the largest garden plant to the point where birds are making nests in the branches. That's the way the kingdom of God works. So if we avoid the small, we never get to the large and significant. He tries to drive the point home. He says, okay, let me, let me try to tell you to do it this way. It's like, uh, it's like a woman baking. She takes just a little bit of yeast and puts it in the batch of dough. And before you know it, it's, spread, it's taken over the whole thing. You can see the effects of that yeast through the, through the entire thing. He's trying to illustrate the kingdom of God. And over and over, he talks about how it's something small and seems insignificant. But when you engage with it, it becomes something wonderful. That's the way the kingdom of God functions in our lives. I start doing something out of obedience. It seems insignificant. I've got to humble myself. God turns it into something wonderful. Look, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, given a name above all other, other names. How did he get exalted? He was willing to humble himself in obedience and serve even to the point of death on, on, on the cross. So that's the pattern we see in the kingdom of God. You'll never step into the large things unless you're willing to step into the small things. Amen? If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We'll pick things up. We, we talked about Acts chapter 6 last week. These deacons or servants that are appointed in the body of Christ talked about Stephen and Philip, how they started serving, waiting tables, but God had more significant impact for them to make. We use them as examples for what I just talked about. Stephen ends up preaching the gospel to the high council, ends up be, being martyred, the first Christian martyr. Philip goes, we'll read about that this morning, and persecution breaks out. Before we jump into Acts chapter 8, would you... That's our prayer alarm. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We magnify your name. There's nobody like you, God. I ask that you'd speak to our hearts. Give us wisdom and insight, revelation, understanding. Father, pray your people would be nourished, built up in their faith, strengthened by your Holy Spirit this morning. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So in Acts chapter 7, again, Stephen is martyred, and it, it starts a persecution of the church. 
Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely to, with the killing of Stephen. So we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep reading, but it's talking about Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul. If we backed up a few verses, it says that when the people were getting ready to stone Stephen, they took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of this guy named Saul. And it was a sign of his, his approval. He was in on it. He gave it the thumbs up. Let's kill this guy. So for whatever reason, apparently people, when they were about to stone someone, would, would take their jackets off and, and lay them down. You don't want to get sweaty when you're stoning someone. Keep yourself cool. Because becoming sweaty is gross, right? Throwing stones in another human being to the point where you kill them. You know, that, we don't avoid that, but getting sweaty while doing it, that's just, that's icky. So they take off their jackets and they lay them at the feet of Saul. And Saul approved of it, and it launches this persecution. Second part of verse 1. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women, to throw them into prison. So this persecution starts. Saul is set on destroying the church. He's dragging out men. He's dragging out women. They're all, they're all going to prison. Being a Christian is wonderful. Amen. Being a Christian, we'll try this side. Being a Christian is wonderful. All right. We've got some actual Christians over here, right? Being a Christian is wonderful. I'm just kidding. You're Christians. Being a Christian is, is wonderful. But being a Christian isn't easy. Amen. Amen? Being a Christian is wonderful. And sometimes when people hear that, they, they reason that if it is wonderful, that means it must be easy. People assume that one must mean the other. Being a Christian is wonderful, but that doesn't mean that being a Christian is easy. There's lots of things that are wonderful, but that doesn't mean they're, they're also easy. I don't know this from personal experience, but I know some people that are very fit. They, are, they exercise a lot. They eat super healthy. I, 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 they would tell you that it's wonderful to be that fit, to be that healthy, to look that good. But they wouldn't tell you that it was easy to arrive at that level of fitness. It's wonderful, they say, but it, it, it's not easy. There's lots of things. How many of you are a parent? Being a parent is wonderful. Right? Being a can be wonderful. There's wonderful parts of being a parent. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. I love being a dad. I really do. Being a parent, I love it. But it doesn't mean that it's easy. Marriage is another area that you, you can make a huge mistake wanting to be married because you know that it's wonderful. You hear that it's wonderful. You have a desire to become married. If you all also think that because it's wonderful, it must be easy. That being married, there, there won't be any sacrifice. There won't be any any problems to work through. You won't have to be intentional. There won't be any work involved. If you come into a marriage with the idea that it's going to be easy and I'm not going to have to be intentional in any area, that's a recipe for failing at the very marriage that you're, you're trying to, to enjoy. Marriage is wonderful. It's not easy. Serving Jesus is the same way. It is wonderful. It's what We can't emphasize that enough. But if you think you're going to step into it and there's not going to be any challenges, any hurdles to overcome, you're fooling yourselves. Jesus wants to bless you. Jesus wants to, to provide for you. Jesus wants us to flourish. But again, if you think it's going to be unopposed, it's a setup for disappointment. 
Think about the, the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is sowing seed, right? It's, uh, uh, it's the word of God. It's the gospel. The story of the results of the gospel going out, different conditions, like different people's lives. What has to happen to reach a point of fruitfulness? Well, first, that seed has to avoid being eaten by birds that come along, right? We're told later that's like the devil trying to snatch and trying to steal from people. That when resistance is encountered, that stony soil, if it's going to get to fruitfulness, it's going to have to push through resistance. It's going to have to not allow persecution, the, the heat of the sun, to wither it up. It's going to have to deny itself entanglement with the desires of this world, with the weeds that can choke it out. And only then can it go on to fruitfulness. Is anybody with me? That you've got to go through some of those things, some hardships and challenges to get to that, to get to that point. And it's wonderful. Jesus wants to lead us in victory. Jesus, the Bible says he leads us from victory to what? From victory to victory. But you can't experience a victory without also experiencing opposition. That's how victories come about. So if you think it's just victory, smooth sailing, no opposition, you're going to be disappointed. You're, you're not going to understand this walk with the Lord. He leads us in victory to another victory, but that also means you can understand he leads you through opposition into another opposition, and you'll come out on top if you'll be faithful and continue to follow Jesus, but there's opposition involved. In order to obtain a victory, you have to be opposed. And when Christians deny that, ignore it, downplay that, they're not understanding what it is to follow Jesus. These people are being persecuted. Being a Christian is wonderful, not easy. I've got three of my four daughters that play volleyball on a volleyball team. Just start, just start a new season. They can, they can practice every day of the week. They can make sure their knee pads are in place and they've got the little uniform and all of those things. They can practice in the driveway at home. They can do all, go through all of the rigmarole associated with volleyball, but they'll never get to experience a victory until they first meet an opponent, meet opposition. And that's the only way we step into victory in the Christian life. There first has to be opponents that come, in, come into our lives. That these people are being scattered. They're, they're being persecuted and scattered, which is a setup for what? There's opposition. It's a setup for victory. It's a setup for, for overcoming. That's what it is. Listen to what it says in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. It's the same word there, he says, to the 12 tribes, to the Jewish people who've been scattered abroad. You guys have been scattered all over the place. Same, same Greek word that we read from Acts, that they were persecuted and the believers were scattered. It's diaspora, diaspora. That means that they're spread all over the place, just cast everywhere, scattered. I don't know if you've ever been walking through the woods and stepped on uh, one of those puffballs little puffball mushroom, right? There's these mushrooms that at some point in the year, they get dried out and they look like a little, like a little bubble on, on the ground. You step on it and it's like, uh, like it, it puffs. That's why they call it puffball, right? It, it puffs the first time. It can be startling to you. What, what in the world? It's like this green smoke comes out of the ground. Anyone know what I'm talking about? These puffballs? First time, you're like, what in the world just happened? But once you catch on, you start looking for them. It's like, all right, you're going to stomp on those. You keep an eye out for, for these puffballs. You can pretend like you're some kind of wizard or something. All of a sudden, there's you know, smoke coming up from your, your feet. It's fun. But what's happening, those puffballs, it's the spores inside that are being released. 
It's how that mushroom reproduces itself. When it encounters difficulty, when you decide you're going to jump on it, stomp on it, it's actually a means of multiplying itself. And those spores get spread out. It's where where we get the word spores from the same word that's being used in James and in Acts chapter 8. The diaspora. It's a spreading about, a casting about. And as a result, in the mushroom's sake, it's reproduction. It's multiplying. So James says, James says he's writing to these people that have undergone this, this diaspora, this persecution that comes against them and scatters them about. Listen to what he says in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. My brothers, he says, you've been scattered all, all over the place, going through hard things. He says to count it all, count it all what? Count it all joy, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You know, sometimes it's, it's one or the other when we talk about the Christian life being a joyous life and an overcomer's life and a victorious life, or people fall to the other end and say, well, no, hey, I mean, you know, being a challenge, it's a challenge being a Christian. It's a life of trials and difficulties, and we just crawl through this life, and it's, it's one or the other, which that, that's not the case. You see here that it's both and. It's not, are, do we have trials or do we have joy? No, we have joy, and the trials are an opportunity for even more joy in the Christian walk. Count it all joy. In, in totality, the word means. Completely joy. Not, hey, I'm going through this at work. I'm going through this at home. Hey, man, this is going on in our community. The government's doing this. It's a real, it's a real challenge. And this stinks. I hate that. That's no good. Yeah, but I guess there's a silver lining. He says, no, in to, count it all. It's all joy. It's all, now, why, how could we consider it all joy? Because he says it's development. It's maturing. That you can't be complete as a man or a woman of God without first going through difficulty and trials and challenges. And when you know, man, this is an opportunity for me to win a victory. This is an opportunity for me to grow in the Lord. Count, count it joy. It's an opportunity. So know that if you are avoiding difficulty and sacrifice and hardship, you are also avoiding maturing and developing and moving towards a level of completion. God wants to develop you. Sacrifice is supposed to be part of this. Amen. Sacrifice is part of the Christian walk. Read the Old Testament. There's lots of sacrificing going on. What did Jesus come to do? He was a sacrifice. When you come to the Lord, when you experience salvation, do you know what you do? You lay down your life. You're supposed to become a living sacrifice. The Christian walk is a life of sacrifice. So if we develop a mentality, man, I'm avoiding any kind of hardship, anything uncomfortable, any kind of, any kind of sacrifice that's required of me. No, no, I, that's not the kind of Christianity I want. That, that's what Christianity is. It's a life of sacrifice. And that's not to say it's a sad, defeated walk. It's a life where everything is joy. Everything is joy. Jesus said that they'll know you're Christians by your what? John chapter 13. They'll know that you're Christians by your love one for another. Do you know love, real love is about sacrifice. That, that, that's what it is. It's about sacrifice. It's about choosing you over me. I lay myself down for your benefit. 
Sacrifice is the expression, the ultimate expression of love. So love isn't selfish. Love is selfless. And if we're supposed to be known by our love, that means we're supposed to be known by our willingness to sacrifice for other people. We know the love of God. How? Because of what Jesus did. The sacrifice of God's own son. He sacrificed them on our behalf. By this, we know the love of God. Jesus said there, there's no greater love than what? To lay your life down for your friend. That, that, that's love. It's, it's, it's about sacrifice. So we know the love of God because Jesus did what? Not say, hey, look how good I have it up here. Man, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm already in heaven. What do I need to accomplish? No, he left all that. He was willing to sacrifice that comfort, sacrifice his own life for our benefit. And that's how we know. That's how we know love. God wants to develop us. He doesn't want us to be a weak, selfish group of people. They are incapable of demonstrating love. He wants us to be strong. He wants us to go on to maturity. Count, count trials uh, an opportunity for joy in our lives. An opportunity to be developed, to grow stronger, to move towards completion. That, that's what trials provide us. That we need to toughen up as believers. Toughen up as Christians in, in general. To become the kind of people that when there's a trial involved, we don't shrink back. The Bible says we are not of those that shrink back. When the enemy's trying to mess things up in your life somehow, it's not that you, you welcome it, but you get a little gleam in your eye because you know it's on, and you know that Jesus is going to lead you through that opposition to another point of victory. That you're going to develop, you're going to grow, you're going to be a, a, able to be more like Jesus, and you go from victory to victory, but in order to do that, you have to go through opposition. That we count it joy. When the enemy comes against you, man, you, you've got a little smirk on your face. You are up for it because you know that you're already victorious. You are an overcomer. Amen? That, that's the kind of people you don't want to mess with. When a fight starts and they they got a smile on their face. There's, there's crazy people like that. Man, they love it when those kinds of things happen. You, you don't want to mess with a guy like that. It's that crazy look in his eye and a, a smile when it thinks a fight's about to break out. That's the kind of people we need to be in the spiritual realm. When difficulty comes, a trial comes, joy, joy. I'm about to chalk up another W. I'm about to walk in greater victory. I'm about to be developed and grow. My, my faith is going to become more mature. That's, what, that's the attitude we need to have. Verse 4. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in the city. Great joy in the city. So persecution breaks out. People are scattered all over, but as these believers are scattered all over, what else is scattered with them? What's scattered with the believers? The, the good news about Jesus. So, so the, the good news begins to spread. The church begins to flourish. That Saul made it his business to do what? What did it say? To destroy the church. And his efforts to destroy the church cause it to expand and grow even bigger. It begins, it begins to spread just like that mushroom. You try to destroy that mushroom. You've, you've just multiplied that mushroom. The, the, the diaspora. There's something in the gospel. Something in the kingdom of God. 
that when opposition comes, it causes a rising. That's, I don't understand it necessarily, but you can see that there's something about God's kingdom that when you try to squash it, when you try to hold it down, when you, you try to bind it, it rises, it, it swells. There's a rising in the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that the kingdom of God is where? It's in you. He's put the kingdom on the inside of us. The Bible says greater is he who is in us than he that is in this world. There's, there's a greater. That means if he's always perpetually greater, the one who resides in us. Perpetually greater means it doesn't matter how great the opposition becomes because it propels you higher because you're always greater. It's the way things work in the kingdom of God. The Bible says when the enemy comes in like a flood, what happens? That the spirit of God raises up a standard against them. In the book of Romans, it says where sin abounds, man, it's spreading everywhere. Sin's going crazy. What also happens? Sin spreads. It's, it abounds. Grace much more abounds or super abounds that you can't supersede God. It's an overcoming kingdom that whenever something comes against it, it goes over it and you are anointed to be an overcomer in that kingdom. The kingdom of God resides on the inside of you. There's something in God's kingdom. It always rises higher and higher as the enemy comes against it. Saul is seeking to destroy the church and it explodes. It begins to multiply. So you don't have to fear opposition. You don't have to fear persecution. When you understand what is the power that's residing in you, it just continues to lift higher and higher when that opposition comes. Greater is he that's in you. What if, the, what if the greater one, or what if the, the opposition gets greater? And, well, my, my, the one in me is always, always greater. When that's his characteristic, it just continues to rise greater and greater and greater. Verse 5 says that he preached the Messiah. The, the New King James says, as Philip went, he preached, he preached Christ. He preached Christ. It was this message, just simply. He didn't preach doctrine. He didn't preach religion. He didn't preach church philosophy. He preached what? Christ. He preached Christ. He preached Christ. He, he talked to them about how God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, the Christ. Why? So that whoever would, believe, whoever would believe in him wouldn't have to perish but could have eternal life, everlasting life. He didn't send Jesus. The Christ didn't come to condemn the world. Christ came, Jesus came so that he could rescue us, so that we could be saved. He talked about being made new, newness of life found only in Jesus. You can be made new in him. You can be made new by him. He preached about the mercy, the goodness, the kindness of God, the love of God, how it's not about me. It's not about what I deserve. It's not about how good I am. It's not about my righteousness. It's not about what you qualify for. It's not about your wisdom not about your ability. What's it about? It's about Jesus. It's, he preached Christ to them. It's all about Jesus. Jesus has to be the focus. He came and he preached Christ. It's about Jesus. And anywhere where I get my eyes on me or off of Jesus, I've set myself up for failure. He, pre he preached Christ. It's all about Jesus. Next verse. Verse nine. A, a man named Simon who had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. 
But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip perform. So Philip goes, he's preaching Christ. People are getting saved. Miracles are happening. People are being baptized in water like we had happen this morning. And there's this guy, Simon, who's a sorcerer. And it says that people called him the great one, the power, the power of God. So he's a sorcerer. He's, he's not like a you know, he's, he's not the guy that hangs out at the comic book store and dresses like Merlin the wizard and, you know, has uh, role play battles at the park with styrofoam swords. It's not that, that kind of sorcerer. This guy's the real deal. It says that he amazed people. He astounded them with his sorcery, with his magic. He, he had results. And the kingdom of God, so beautiful and so wonderful and so powerful that it overcame even what evil spirit had, had him bound. And he, he converts and gets baptized. He repents to follow Jesus. Even this wicked sorcerer understood that it's, it's one or the other. It's one or the other. That he, he understood it's not Jesus and my sorcery. I'm going to leave this. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to repent and follow after, after Jesus. Now, why, why we have this subject up, I want to take a minute just to address it because I, I always took it for granted that Christians knew that we're not supposed to mess with things of the occult, astrology, Ouija boards, uh, astrology, all that kind of stuff, your horoscope. I just took it for granted. Christians, we, we don't mess with that kind of, anything that has to do with the occult, witchcraft, that's not for believers. But I've been shocked at the number of people who are Christians, but they dabble in these things and they open doors into their life. Hey, yeah, no, I'm a Christian. I just like to check my horoscope every day. Hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm this sign. What sign, what sign are, are you? Or they consult psychics or allow, allow that to have a voice in their life. I just like to take the quiz online to see, you know, that the Bible tells us we're not supposed to have any room for that in our lives. And it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to open your life up to it. So first of all, we're forbidden to involve ourselves with anything along those lines. Let me read you from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 9, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your sons or daughters as a burnt offering. And do not let your people practice fortune-telling or use sorcery or interpret omens, or engage in witchcraft, or cast spells, or function as mediums, or psychics, or call for the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It is because the other nations have done these detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. But you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you are about to displace consult sorcerers and fortune tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. Now, again, maybe that's, you're, you're like me. It's like, oh, man, that's like a no-brainer. I know. I'm so, but that's not everybody. And so we're talking about it's important that if you have dabbled in those things that you stop, we are forbidden from engaging in those kinds of things. Anything along those lines. 
We're not supposed to engage ourselves with them. Now, sometimes there's a couple of arguments. One of the arguments is, well, if it's not real, if, you know, if it's, if it's fake, then what's the big deal? What harm can it do? We're not supposed to do them because they're fake. We're supposed to stay away from them because they're demonic. And when you, when you begin to consult with those things or look to them, even just in you know, simple fun, I'm just interested to see what it says. You're opening yourself up to whatever demonic force is related to that sign or that horoscope or, or that psychic reading or whatever it is. And then some people will argue, well, you know what? Uh, I don't think it's fake at all. There's, there's something to it. I don't know what it is, but I'll tell you, when I check my horoscope, more often than not, it's accurate. When I got my lucky number or, you know, whatever the excuse is, there's some credence to it. Man, I found it to be pretty true in my life. I had a psychic really help me through this difficult situation in my life. Whatever, whatever part of that you make room for because you see, man, there's something to it. You know, the Bible says in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 13, we won't take time to read it. The first four verses, it talks about times where God will allow fortune tellers and psychics to have accuracy and succeed in what they're doing. And when they do that, it's actually God testing your heart. God sometimes will test people's hearts by allowing those people to, to be accurate. And so it's a dangerous thing to begin to consult with any kind of spiritual force other than the spirit of God. And again, I know, hey, it's just entertainment. It even says on entertainment purposes only. Listen, if you want to consult about your day and how things are going to go, consult with the Spirit of God. Consult with the Word of God. The Bible says, today is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So if I'm going to consult with how this day is going to go, I can talk to the one who created today. And if I start looking to other spirits and other sources of guidance, I'm putting myself under that yoke of control. And it might start small and seemingly innocent, but when I am invite the advice, when I put myself under the consultation of one of these other forces, man, I've signed myself up to eventually become a slave to it. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He's, he wants to lead you and guide you and give you insight and understanding if you're looking for it. He identifies himself. One of the primary ways God identifies himself is as a shepherd. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. And he's jealous when you start trying to follow what, what some other spirit has to say. So again, if you, that, man, yeah, that's obvious to me. Well, great. But if it's not, you need to be aware. If you mess with that stuff, even in a slight way, you just have an app on your phone, let's get rid of it. Close, close those doors to the enemy. We're forbidden. It says that when we do those things, it makes us detestable to God. That's strong language. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the, the believers back at headquarters, back in Jerusalem, they hear, man, people are getting saved. Lots of people are coming to know Jesus. They're getting baptized in water down in Samaria. What was the first thing they sent them? What did they send them? Not, not the latest Thomas Kincaid collection. Now that you're Christians, it's going to change the look of your decor. And you start decorating in tones of mauve. And if you're going to be a real Christian, you need a, a stone cottage with the lights still on at evening. So, you know, somewhere, somewhere up in, in, your, in your home. That's not what the, and there's nothing wrong if, you, if you're a Thomas Kincaid fan. 
He's, he's, he's a gifted artist. He, you know. But that's not what they sent him. They didn't send him a, a, a pack of daily devotionals or anything like that. What did they send them? They sent a couple of apostles to go. It says, as soon as they arrived, they lay hands on them for the, to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We, we've already talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this series, but it's important for us to see what an emphasis it was in the early church. As soon as they arrived, you guys need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be, they, they'd already received the, they've already been baptized in water, but there was a second baptism. They've already experienced salvation, but there was a second work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that was critical that they received. And in the modern church, a lot of people shy away from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, even those that would say doctrinally they believe in it. I mean, yeah, actually our, our doctrine is we, we do believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you never hear anyone pray in tongues. You never hear the Holy Spirit talked about. There's never an opportunity to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they shy away from it. But when we examine how the early church functioned, they leaned into it. They emphasized it. It was the first thing. All right, you've been saved. You've been baptized. We need to get you filled. Saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that's what they tried to march you through as soon as possible. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When... When the Bible talks about how God pours out his spirit in the last days, in the last days, he'll pour out his spirit. You know, it goes along with what we talked about earlier. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God, God raises it up, raises a standard. That the kingdom of God always supersedes what the, the enemy is doing. And in the last days where wickedness abounds, God wants to pour out his spirit like never before. God wants to fill you to overflow with his spirit, and we need it more than anyone has ever needed it because of the lateness of the hour that we live in. God wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit. If you've never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we'll give you an opportunity here in just a few moments. If, you, if you've never experienced any of those things, if you've never come to Jesus, don't have a walk with the Lord, we'll give you an opportunity to do that. We've got a tank set up this morning. If you've never been baptized in water, we'll dip you in there. We'll pray for you to receive the baptism of the Holy We can take care of it all this morning. Amen. But it was a point, they leaned into it. It was emphasized. Not like, hey, that's an option right away. It says right away. As soon as they arrived, you guys need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you, for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and you're held captive by sin. So, the apostles come, they're ministering the power of the Holy Spirit. People are, are being filled. They're starting to speak with other tongues. Simon, who used to be the sorcerer, he's converted. He's been baptized himself. He sees it, and he offers to buy it, and he gets rebuked for it. Now, I want to take a couple of minutes, and we'll kind of wrap up just pressing in on what's happening with this story of Simon, of Simon the sorcerer, because it's very easy to read this and be like, yeah, that, man, that guy's, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. Good thing Peter rebuked him. And you, you just move on, and we can miss out on any kind of personal application from what God is teaching us in this passage. So Simon, Simon the ex-sorcerer, 
What, what did he want? He wanted to be able to minister the Holy Spirit. He wanted what the apostles had. He had a desire for it, and they rebuked him. What, what, they said, you have no part in this. You can't have the Holy Spirit. No, you, you, don't, you can't have any part of this. Why? Verse 21, because your heart is not right with God. You have no part in this because your heart is not right with God. Well, what was going on in his heart? This is important because whatever's going on in his heart, it kept him from receiving something good from the kingdom of God. Is what he desired a good thing? What he saw, man, those people are being ministered to by the power of God. Is that desirable as he set his heart on something good or something bad? It was a good thing that he wanted. So that's not the part that was off in his heart. We're supposed to covet the gifts of the Spirit. Man, I want the Holy Spirit. I want to be able to minister like these guys are. He, what he wanted was good. Do you think God wanted him to be, have the Holy Spirit? Do you think God wanted to be able to minister by his Holy Spirit through Simon's life? Yes, absolutely he did. I've prayed for these things. Some of you have prayed for them. Lord, I want to be used. I want your spirit. I want to be used by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let your spirit minister. I, we're supposed to desire those things. Paul, the apostle, said, follow me as I follow Christ. So what's off in his heart isn't that he saw something good and desired. What's off? Where did he get rebuked? Verse 20. Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you. Why? He's talking about people being destroyed. That's harsh. What was the problem? May your money be destroyed with you. Why? For thinking God's gift can be bought. That, that was the problem. Not, not desiring it, but his understanding of how to go about acquiring it. The problem wasn't that he desired. It's that he was twisted around in how to acquire it. So he offers him money. Hey, I'd like to buy that. Man, that's awesome. I, man, I want what you guys have. I want to be like the apostles. I want to serve God like you. How much? How much can I pay for? How much is the gift of the Holy Spirit worth? What do you think he pulled out that day? Unfolded a few bills, a hundred bucks, a thousand dollars. What do you think it's worth? What, what kind of price would you put on the Holy Spirit using you? A bazillion dollars? A kajillion? I, I don't know many numbers after about a thousand. What, what, what price would you put on it? You can't put a price on something that costs the blood of Jesus. What heaven has provided by the grace of God and the kindness, the kindness of God. What, what price would you put on being used by the Holy Spirit to know the Spirit of God? If you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, if you know his comfort and his leading and his peace and his strength, if you've ever tasted the joy of having God's Spirit use you to minister to someone else, what kind of price would you put on that? As soon as you monetize it, it doesn't matter how big the number is, as soon as you monetize it, you, you've twisted it around. You've cheapened it. You can't purchase a gift from God. It can't be bought. No, no amount of money. And God finds it offensive. You have no part in this. Why, didn't, why did he have no part? Because he didn't understand how to properly acquire. Once you try to purchase it, you, you can't have it. He was denied the very thing he wanted because he was going about it wrong, thinking he could buy the gift of God. Now, we probably haven't tried to offer money for the gift of God. Any gift of God. We're using baptism in the Holy Spirit and being used by the Holy Spirit. This applies to anything that's provided by the grace of God. That's what he says. You, you thought you could buy a gift, a gift from God. You probably haven't offered money, pulled out a, you know, your, your card or your wallet and tried to say, I'll, I'll take some of that. But how many of us have worked out some kind of barter in our mind that we've, we've tried to jump through certain hoops 
we've tried to put a price on, tried to purchase through our behavior something that God wants to provide by his, by his grace. And why it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to work our own efforts into what God has provided by his grace, you can see here that that kind of attitude, when I try to acquire something from God by looking at what I can provide, somebody, a few weeks of good behavior, what kind of price do you put on what God wants you to have by his grace? As soon as you put a, a price on it, and I'm not just talking about a dollar amount, by your behavior, by your good deeds, by your consistency, by your church attendance, by what you did, by what you didn't do, as soon as you put some kind of price tag on it, you've cut, you've cut yourself far from being able to receive it. You cannot purchase what God wants you to receive by his grace as a gift. And if that sounds harsh or maybe just twisting this passage, let me read a couple of passages from Galatians where you see this very thing happening. There is a tendency in our minds, and it's, it's a, a religious thought that we think it's pleasing or it's not that big of a deal if I think, yes, it's what Jesus did for me, but I also need to, I need to work in a little bit of my effort and barter a little bit as well. And when we see it as not a big deal, yeah, I'm probably guilty a little, a little bit of that. <laughs> it is an enormous deal that we need to take seriously because like they preached in verse five, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's all Jesus. That's like, you know, 75, 20. No, it's all Jesus. It's all about him. Because anything I have to offer him, anything in my own ability, anything that I can provide, where did I get it in the first place? Everything has been provided by the grace of God. I have nothing to offer that I didn't first get from him. He gets all the glory, all the credit, all the, I have nothing to bring to the equation. It's all by his grace. Listen to what it says in, in Galatians. Galatians chapter three. Verse one, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. It's about Jesus. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? Now, again, try to feel the harshness or the severity of what he's saying and not just kind of cruise past this. First of all, he's calling them, you, you fools, you, you're so foolish. It's not, not a word that he just threw around. This is a harsh statement. He says that you've begun. Have you experienced the favor of God? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? So he's using the same example. He says everything, this is, this is the church, this is believers. They follow Jesus. They've received the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized in water. They're walking with the Lord. And he says it's possible for it all to become vain. He says, surely this wasn't all in vain. Your Christian experience can become vanity. The moment it ceases being about Jesus and becomes about you. That's what vanity, it's for nothing. It's for nothing. Listen to what it says a little bit later in this letter, chapter five, verse one. So Christ truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Why is he saying, hey, set you free from relying on your own human effort. Make sure you stay free. Because there's such a pool to move back that direction, to tangle you up again, to looking at yourself and what you bring to the table instead of just relying and trusting on the grace of God. Now make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up or tangled up again in slavery to the law. 
Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit. What? How can Christ? How can Jesus be of no benefit? Surely we misread that. Surely he doesn't really mean Christ. Christ can become, you know what Christ is good for in some people's life? Nothing. Is that what he means? Well, he clarifies. I'll say it again. Yep, that's what he meant. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God, so even the favor of God, by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. If you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. If you're trying to make yourself right, you're trying to earn, you're putting a price. Same thing that we saw with Simon the Sword. You have no part in this. Your heart's not right. It says you've, been, you've severed yourself. You've been cut off. You're part of the body of Christ. You can be sliced off, severed from the body of Christ. Why? It becomes vanity because now it's about you. You're relying on yourself and Christ is of no benefit. It's all about Jesus, reliance on the grace of God. And as soon as I get in the mix, man, I've, I've, I've poisoned it. It's got to be about Jesus. And if the Galatians, if the early church need to be brought back to this point over and over, we do too. Where is your reliance? Where are you looking? To, are you working at some kind of barter, some kind of exchange for the favor of God, the spirit of God, relationship with the Lord? It's all about Jesus' sacrifice. So when they, when they rebuke Simon in Acts chapter 8, what was their instruction to him? Repent. Repent of what? Hey, it's not that big of a deal. Just try not to do that. He said, repent of your wickedness. It's wickedness. It's wi it, it elevates me to the level of what only God can do. It's wickedness in the sight of God. And whatever religious misconceptions we have, it's like, yeah, there's worse things. This, this, is, this is a serious issue. It keeps us from receiving what God wants us to receive. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.